0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Last week, we launched into a new year of the church calendar. And uh, this is the second Sunday of the season of Advent, a season of preparation and longing, joining with the people of Israel and the story of God, anticipating uh, the coming of, of Christ into our world. And um, last week, Nathan began a journey for us through this season of Advent, which will continue this morning. We're studying the life the ministry and the message of a crazy cousin of Jesus's by the name of John the Baptist. And a really familiar biblical figure to most of us that uh, have spent some time around the church or around the Bible, but a very confusing figure. And oftentimes we uh, maybe struggle to understand why John the Baptist is so important to the story of the gospel. Um... He starts with his weird name, John the Baptist. I grew up Baptist, like many of you, and I didn't really understand what that meant, other than it was nice to know that the founder of our denomination was in the Bible, rather than like some guy from Germany or something. Actually, I was at a pastor's gathering a few years ago, and uh, John Ortberg, one of my favorite pastors, was there speaking to a group of us. And uh, it was one of those groups where it was pastors from a whole bunch of different Christian denominations and traditions, uh, guys that don't usually get along in the wild uh, together in one room. And uh, Ortberg opened by saying, I love moments like this because they remind me or they give me a vision of what heaven's going to be like. Right, and he's like, I like to picture uh, that in heaven. There's going to be, uh, you know, believers from all different denominations and traditions, each represented by the founder. And so you'll have the Lutherans there represented by Martin Luther, and you'll have the Presbyterians there represented by John Calvin, and the Methodists there represented by John Wesley, and the Baptists there represented by Jesus, and <laughs> and it's just going to be one big beautiful party. So. Gotta love Wartburg. Hopefully you know that John the Baptist wasn't a Baptist in the sense of the denomination, which obviously didn't exist in biblical times, um, which is why many people, many believers, have preferred to refer to him as John the Baptizer, meaning uh, this act of baptizing uh, was central to his ministry, especially as he anticipated the coming of Christ. Uh, In the Eastern Church, they have another uh, more common way of referring to John, and that is John the Forerunner, or John the Precursor. And uh, I really like that distinction. It kind of helps understand a little bit more specifically uh, the role that that John the Baptist plays in the story um, of the gospel. And so let me just talk about that for a few moments, the significance of, of John the precursor, John the forerunner uh, in the story of the gospel and then a little later we'll get to our text for this morning. And so um, in the first sense, John is the precursor to Christ or the forerunner to Christ in that he is the last of the Hebrew prophets. We don't find his story until we get to the New Testament, to the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but in a very real sense, John plays the role of an Old Testament prophet, Um, We usually think of prophecy as prediction, as future telling, and sometimes amongst the biblical prophets, that is the role that God has them play telling uh, God's people what is to come, often in the form of a warning that if you don't turn from your worship of idols and repent of your sin and return to Yahweh, then this is what is going to happen. So sometimes prophecy does take the role of future telling, but more often than that, uh, prophecy simply refers to truth-telling. And so prophets were men and women in the Old Testament who God would raise up and he would appoint them to be his mouthpiece to his people. A prophet's job was to listen to what God was saying and then to say what God was saying uh, to the people. And yes, sometimes that has to do with future events, but oftentimes, uh, just as often, it had to do with the present And so if you know the prophets in the Old Testament, you know that they're kind of a a gnarly bunch of dudes, right? They tend to be these really intense, blunt, shameless kind of guys. They aren't too concerned with fitting in or looking cool or being popular. Um, They're just kind of these passionate dudes who, for the most part, are willing to do anything to get God's message across to his people. So some of them, they're really more like performance artists than prophets in the the sense of what we would picture. That there, there are these guys out there on the streets, out there in the public square, making a spectacle, making fools of themselves for the sake of communicating God's heart and God's word to his people. So a couple examples, a guy named Ezekiel. God has him build this little model of the city of Jerusalem and then lie. Lie on his side, next to this model, for two years, cooking food over his own excrement, and then God tells him he wants to shave all his—he wants him to shave all of his hair off and then burn it, and so Ezekiel does this and. Uh, appears to be a fool, but he's so committed to the communication of God's word that he's willing to do that. Micah, another prophet, went around naked and barefoot. We're told howling like a jackal and moaning like an owl. Uh, That was his version of preaching, which I won't do for you today, but it could always happen. Um, And then the famous story of the prophet Hosea. And God basically told Hosea, I want you to go down to the local uh, whorehouse and choose a prostitute and marry her. And your very life, your very marriage, is going to be a testimony to my people about the kind of God that I am. And so prophets are really performance artists, which I just, I was on my mind last night when I came across this story in the news. Did you see this? Uh, Yesterday in an art gallery in Miami, this Italian artist Um, duct tapes a banana to the wall. Did you see that? And um, it's like this statement about consumerism and capitalism and kind of the myth of modern uh, economy and how we sort of attach value to various objects and that sort of thing. This is literally the whole piece of art. It's a banana that he bought at a supermarket in Miami and then duct taped to the wall. And this thing blows up. Thousands of people come to visit this, take pictures of it. They put it on auction and it goes for $120,000 somebody buys the banana duct taped to the wall. This just happened yesterday in Miami. And then as soon as the auction goes through, the artist goes and grabs the banana and eats it. Right? And it causes this huge thing, like that was my property, I own it. And the artist goes, uh, the banana or the artwork wasn't an installation, the artwork was a performance. And you just purchased a performance of me eating. <laughs> and, The point is, this guy would make a great Hebrew prophet, right? That's what I want you to picture when you think through stories of Ezekiel and and Micah and all those kinds of guys. Um, Which then, if John is the continuation of this long story of Hebrew prophets, it helps us understand a little bit of his persona, right? This wild man from the wilderness, dressed in camel hair, Eating locusts and wild honey, like before, paleo was cool. Um, prophets are like these strange guys from a different world. Now, as you read through the scriptures, primarily in the Old Testament, one of the clues that the biblical authors will give us that we're dealing with the genre of prophetic writing is this little phrase, the word of the Lord came to... dot dot dot." And so it's really important as we become students of the scriptures that we understand that this book is really a collection of many books that contains many different genres of scripture. There's poetry and there's history and there's prophecy and there's apocalyptic narrative. Uh, literature. And so we need to understand what genre of literature we're dealing with in order to understand how to interpret, right? And one of the ways that we know we are dealing with a piece of prophetic literature is, again, this little phrase, the word of the Lord came to. And so let me just give you a quick tour and and show you how, how common this is. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Jeremiah 33, verse 19, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Ezekiel 1.3, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Haggai 2.20, the word of the Lord came to Haggai. Zechariah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Do you get the point? I could go on and on. These prophetic pieces of writing we have, in, primarily in the Old Testament, the author's intentionally use this language to help us understand that we're dealing with prophetic literature. That soldier freaked me out when I looked over there for (laughs) a moment. My gosh. Um, The word of the Lord came to, the word of the Lord came to. And then as Nathan mentioned last week's ending with Malachi, we have these 400 years of silence, the intertestamental period. And then when we come to the gospel according to Luke chapter 3, listen to what the author says. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And so even though we are now in the New Testament, we have the biblical author continuing on in this tradition of helping us see that John, in this case, is God's chosen mouthpiece at this point in time to communicate God's truth Uh, to his people. And so John, if we want to understand who he is, we have to understand him as part of this long tradition, this long story of Hebrew prophets that God raises up and gives them a message, and sometimes it's a message of hope. An encouragement, and sometimes it's a message that has to do with a warning. And we'll see that in John's message, it really has elements of both. And so understand John, first and foremost, as an Old Testament So that's the first sense in which I think um, it's important to understand John as the precursor or the forerunner to Christ, that he joins in this long biblical tradition of speaking God's word to God's people, and oftentimes that word has a messianic shape or a hope shape to it, that God is going to intervene, God is going to show up, God is going to break into our world, and so hold on, hold on. And that's the message that John brings as a precursor uh, to Christ. The second sense in which John is a forerunner or precursor, and Nathan hit on this last week, um, was that in many ways, John's very life was a foretaste of Jesus' life. If you think about their two narratives, there are so many points of similarity between the two. That both John and Jesus, their births were foretold to their parents by angels. That both John and Jesus had miraculous births. John born to a woman too old to bear children, and Jesus born to a virgin. Both John and Jesus begin their ministry in the wilderness. Both John and Jesus proclaim a gospel that's the exact same words as Nathan showed us last week. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Both John and Jesus are rejected by the Pharisees and the religious powers uh, of the day. Both John and Jesus eventually would be Uh, arrested and executed. And interesting, both of their executions would be ordered by a ruler who is hesitant to do so. In the case of John, it's Herod. Uh, In the case of Jesus, it's Pilate, both of these authority figures that really don't see any reason to put John or Jesus to death, but are compelled to do so uh, by the crowd around them. And then after John and Jesus' deaths, both of their disciples come uh, seeking after uh, their bodies so and there, there's many many more parallels but it's so interesting as Nathan explained last week that this is why in so many cases John is mistaken for Jesus and Jesus is mistaken for John so not only are they first cousins and maybe have some family resemblance and they're almost exactly the same age but their ministry and their life story is is very nearly identical in so many ways. And so people, people often thought that Jesus was John the Baptist and often wondered if John the Baptist was Jesus himself. And so when we are told that John's life in ministry, John's calling or vocation was to prepare the way for the Messiah, to be a forerunner or precursor for Jesus, it wasn't just his message. It's that his life itself was actually a foretaste or a sneak peek of Jesus' life. And so the language that biblical scholars would use is that John the Baptist was a type of Christ. He was an example or a picture of Christ that would come before, and therefore, by looking at the life, ministry, and message of John the Baptist, we actually get to learn something new and beautiful about the person of Jesus. There's all kinds of types of Christ throughout the Bible. Um, almost every major point of the narrative of the Old Testament, you can find a Christ-like figure, right? Whether it's Moses leading God's people out of slavery into freedom, Moses, in that sense, is a type of Christ. He's an example or a forerunner of Christ. And so we have many of them, and we're told again, or we get this picture again, that John the Baptist is himself a type of Christ, so, um, John's the forerunner in the sense that he joins the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, preparing the way for the Lord, and secondly, in the sense that he's a type of Christ, and his life gives us a sneak peek of the life of Christ. Um, If you have paid attention, as we go through the various uh, seasons of the church calendar, we swap out the artwork at the communion tables. And uh, this week, as we come into the season of Advent, um, this is the uh, eastern icon that uh, you'll find at the table. And by the way, icons aren't things that we worship. These are not uh, images of God that are designed to be something we pray to or look to, um, but icons are simply artistic theology, uh, visual theology that helps us. Um, the, re- the, the way I- iconographers talk about it is that we don't look at icons, we look through icons. They're like windows into eternity, and if it's helpful for you uh, to think about who you're communing with, then uh, we utilize it that way, but this particular icon is called the deesis, and uh, it's been passed down from the Eastern uh, tradition of Christianity. And in this particular icon, Jesus himself obviously is central, and he's seated upon the throne as the already and coming king of the universe, God's chosen Messiah for Israel, and the one uh, through whom all things will be reconciled. But then on his left and on his right, we have the Virgin Mary and John the Baptist. And so for the season of Advent, this is a fitting icon in the sense that Jesus is central and we would want to focus our attention, our adoration, our affection, and our worship towards him. And John the Baptist and the Virgin Mary are simply there to help us do that. So their life and their story um, has this Christ shape to it. uh, That they are both physically, in in this painting, pointing to Jesus saying, don't look at us, don't focus on us, but let our life and our testimony and our story help point you uh, to Jesus. And so again, the idea that the word of the Lord, the word of God came to John the Baptist, in what form? Well, in the form of a prophetic message and in the the form of a Christ-shaped life. But the word of the Lord came to Mary in a different way. And that's the, the, the story that we'll celebrate in a few weeks at Christmas, But for Mary, the word of the Lord or the prophetic role that her life played wasn't that of a preacher, but it was that of pregnancy. The word of the Lord came to Mary, and it wasn't uh, an audible word, it was a visible word. It was a three-dimensional word. It was a human word, the name of Jesus. And so God's word comes in the flesh, and John's whole job is to point us to Jesus And Mary's job is to bring Jesus into the world. One of my artist friends this week posted something online, and it was a picture of the Virgin Mary pregnant. And he said, Sometimes the presence of God feels like morning sickness. I don't know exactly what that feels like. I probably have an idea just based on other kinds of sickness. But isn't that comforting to know that sometimes as God draws near... It doesn't feel the way we would expect it to, but it almost feels like pain, like longing, like expectation. And it doesn't mean God's far, it's actually a sign that God's close. One last kind of interesting point of, of church history here that I really do think is fascinating. Um, I know for many of us, this whole church calendar thing is still kind of new and maybe weird. And I'm sensitive to that. I really am. The last thing I want to do is try to present a vision of Christian discipleship that feels legalistic or something like that. And so so we really are sensitive to that. I've just found that the calendar is super helpful when it comes to uh, inviting us into the story of Jesus. One of the weird things, if we're honest, about the church calendar is that it somehow has to do with the lunar calendar right? I already think the moon is super weird. Like it makes waves. I don't get that, right? Um, but when's Easter? Anybody know when Easter is? Exactly. Bradley, I love you. It is so good. Of course, that's when you would re- celebrate the resurrection of the dead. You would wait until the full moon after the equinox. That makes sense, doesn't it? I don't know. Apparently, it did. Um, Here's the other thing. Um, Sometimes when it comes to this stuff, like I do just shake my head and go, "I I don't get it. There was a weird thing. I do celebrate that Christians have a long history of plundering and redeeming aspects of pagan culture and reappropriating them for the sake of the gospel. I think that's a good thing. That's why I teach the Enneagram, by the way. But every year... Or, or there are cases, though, where I do think it's fascinating, the history of the calendar. And so every year in our calendar, we have these two solstices, right? Um, the shortest day of the year and the longest day of the year. And so the winter solstice is the shortest day of the year, and it's coming up really quickly. It's usually somewhere mid to late December this year, December 21st, and it's going to be the shortest day of the year. So Christmas has traditionally landed really near the winter solstice, and therefore the, the celebration of Christ's birth um, lands oftentimes on the, sh- the longest day or the longest night of the year, so to speak. Now, here's what's interesting, and we as Protestants don't know anything about this. The summer solstice is exactly six months earlier than the winter, June 21st this year, between June 20th and June 22nd. And it is the longest day of the year, and the shortest night. And traditionally, the summer solstice is when Christians around the world of many different traditions and denominations have celebrated the feast of John the Baptist. And so at the winter solstice, we celebrate the birth of Christ. And at the summer solstice, we celebrate The birth of John the Baptist. Now, as Protestants, again, we don't celebrate that. I'm not even totally sure how you would. But I love the symbolism of it that we celebrate Jesus' birth at the time of the shortest day of the year, which means this that starting with Christmas, every day is a little bit longer than the next. Every day there's a little bit more sun, there's a little bit more light and the darkness of the night gets a little bit shorter every day after Christmas. And when we come to the celebration of John the Baptist's birth, the longest day of the year, it means that every day after that, every day gets shorter and shorter, darker and darker, until Jesus comes. I still don't get the moon, but that's pretty cool. (laughs) And it's really based off this famous quote from John the Baptist in John 3, verse 30, where he says, speaking of Christ, that he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. And it's represented by the way uh, Christians before us have laid out this calendar. And so we come into Christmas this year wanting to follow in the life and the legacy of John. That our very lives would somehow point to Jesus. That the life we live in some way could be a precursor or a forerunner to the presence of Jesus. And I'll take just a moment on this, but in many ways this is the way that I've come to think about what we often call evangelism. The idea of presenting the good news of Christ into a world that desperately needs it. What does it look like to live in relationship with those who live differently and believe differently than we do as Christians? How are we invited by the gospel to be the bearers of this good news? In many ways, John gives us this really beautiful picture of a gospel-shaped or an evangelistic-shaped life. That yes, he has a message, he has a word, he has a story that he's telling. He's not afraid to drop J-bombs in casual conversations and make it awkward, right? He understands that the gospel is news and therefore needs to be spoken and communicated to be heard and received with faith. But that's not all that John shows us. It's not just his message, but it's his very life And the idea is that as a type of Christ, that as people were growing familiar with John, as they were learning who he was, as they watched the way he lived and the way he ordered his life, that they were growing simultaneously to know Jesus who would come after him. And I think to a certain extent, that is the invitation that every Christ follower has as well that we would inhabit this world as visitors from the future that we would live in this world with a prophetic presence, that we would show up not just going with the flow of culture but in various ways, that our lives would be set apart and that as our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers get to know us as they observe the way we live and as they see the way we order our life, that they are getting to know Christ in us that we really believe that there is this gospel of regeneration, that we really have been born again, that the old man has died, that the new has, has, has come, that Pete Kelly no longer lives, but Christ Jesus lives in me. And therefore, when I'm hanging out with my neighbors or my friends or my coworkers, as they're growing to know and to love and to trust me, they're growing to know and love and trust Jesus, whether they realize it or not because Christ lives in me. Now, you could hear that this morning as an incredible burden, right? Oh, great, now I have to go out and be Jesus to the world. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Um, Or you can hear it as an empowering invitation, that all of a sudden everything in your life is, is getting ready to burst open with meaning and with purpose. And that every single human interaction you have is bustling with potential of the good news coming to bear in maybe really simple ways, in really uh, plain acts of service or words of love or whatever it is. And so in the same sense, John both proclaims a gospel, he also embodies a gospel. I think we're called to the same as well. To have a prophetic presence in the world that we live in where, yes, when we get the chance, we do, don't hesitate to share the good news of Jesus with our friends and neighbors. But it shouldn't be shocking when we do because our life is already shaped like Christ. So, let me pause there and transition, and we'll just spend our last moments together in the book of Matthew chapter 11. If you want to flip there, you can, but we'll have it up on screen. Um, And The reason I spend all this time making a big deal about John is because he is, according to Jesus himself, the greatest human being that had ever lived, right? And the one who understood the heart and the mind and the message and the ministry of Jesus better than anybody else, and the one whose life really mirrored Christ's life. And so, To have somebody like John find himself in the situation that we find him in today um, really is perplexing and raises a couple questions. Matthew chapter 11, and I just want to focus in on verse 2 and 3 for a moment. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Okay, this is striking when you understand everything that we've just said about John the Baptist, the one who has incredible clarity and amazing faith in who Jesus is and preaches the same gospel and and lives the same life. And all of a sudden, at some point, he's going, can you guys go check and see if this really is Jesus, if Jesus really is the Christ or... Have we, have we missed something here, right? Um, what an interesting moment in the story. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? There's a few different ways that uh, Bible scholars have interpreted this passage, and I'll spend a little time on each of them. Um, but the first is this. Where is John when this happens? We're told he's in prison, Okay. So this is a guy whose entire life has been pointing to the coming of Christ, whose whole message was that Jesus is coming, God's king is coming, and he's going to restore shalom in the world. And when Jesus does finally show up, John is expecting everything to get better. He's expecting uh, the Roman occupation of the Jews to end. He's expecting Jesus to become the liberating king of the Jews. And instead, John gets involved in this weird like soap opera scandal with Herod and his wife and ends up in prison. And Jesus is out doing this ministry and John's stuck in a jail cell. This was not how he expected things to go. Are you really the one? <laughs> is this the, this is the Messiah then. Okay. I, I thought I would... I thought it would be a little different. I thought maybe I'd get to be there um, and hang out a little bit more. But is this really what it is? And so it's an interesting thing that even with all the clarity that John had about the person of Jesus and the gospel of God's kingdom, it's possible that he still missed it it's possible that he still thought that God's kingdom was primarily about him instead of about Jesus. It's possible that he thought when Jesus, when the Messiah comes, that all my plans are going to work out and all my dreams are going to come true that all the struggles of my life are finally going to find their place, everything's going to make sense when the Messiah comes. And if that's what you thought, then you and I are gonna have a hard time throwing the first stone, aren't we? If we somehow mistake the gospel of Jesus for a gospel of our own personal comfort and fulfillment if we somehow assume that the evidence of God's blessing or presence in our life is that things go well for us, if we fall into the trap of believing that when God shows up in my world that I'm going to be comfortable and I'm going to be happy and life's going to be easy and my plans are going to work out and my dreams are going to come true, and any presence of pain or loss or suffering or confusion or doubt or fear or sickness or death, that somehow all of that is evidence that God isn't as near as we thought. We start to understand that even John, the one who said he must increase and I must decrease, still maybe secretly had this secret belief that as he increases, I'm going to increase as well. And what's fascinating is that, as John sends his disciples to go and to ask Jesus, this is the answer that Jesus gives in the next verse. Matthew 11:4. And Jesus answered them, "Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. End quote. So when Jesus hears that his beloved crazy cousin is sitting in a prison cell and has sent his disciples to ask, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you God's chosen, anointed, liberating king who's come to fool us? Or should we wait for someone else? This is the word that Jesus sends back to him. And it has nothing to do with John the Baptist, does it? It has nothing to do with John's plans coming together or dreams coming true with his own personal comfort or success or fulfillment. Jesus says, my kingdom is an un." shakable force in the world, and you'll know it's me because when I show up and when my kingdom takes root, the blind will see, the lame will walk, lepers will cleanse, deaf will hear, the dead will be raised up, and the poor will hear the good news. Jesus gives this prophetic vision of the kingdom that doesn't promise an easy or comfortable life, doesn't promise a clean bill of health or a happy holiday. What he promises, in the words of Julia Norwich that I shared several weeks ago, that all will be well and all will be well, And all manner of things will be well. One day. One day, things will be on earth as they are in heaven. And that day is still to come. If you think about John's message to Jesus as a prayer, because in many ways that is what it is, a human speaking to Jesus, are you the one, Jesus? Are you really who you said you are? Can I really trust you? And if I really had to guess at what John was saying beneath his words, it's like, when are you going to get me out of prison? Jesus doesn't answer that question. And probably it was gracious of him not to. Because the answer is, you're never going to get out of prison. And in a few days, you're going to get your head cut off. But here's how you know that I am the sent one of God. The blind can see, the deaf can hear, the lame can walk, the dead are raised, and good news to the poor. Man, this messes with us, doesn't it? This is not a precious moment's gospel. And in some ways, it's not the gospel we want. I would love a promise that I'm going to get out of prison. That my pain and suffering are going to all be put together sometime soon. That all my problems, my struggles, my sickness, my fears, that all of that's going to be taken care of. And Jesus brings this message of a kingdom that's not from this world. And it has hope for this world. It has hope for your life. It has hope for humanity. Hope for history. And one day it will come true. But it hasn't yet. It started. It started. So the last thing I would say is that according to Jesus, what are the sure signs that it's really him? If we want to know, is this really Jesus? What are we looking for? What does the presence of God look like in the world? And I think for those that have grown up in the strange evangelical subculture, we're in for a surprise. If Jesus wanted to prove to John that I am who I say I am, that I am the real Jesus, I would kind of expect him to say, Have you ever heard me cuss? <laughs> Look at my Christian t shirt. (laughs) Look at the Christian music I listen to. (laughs) All these kind of weird, superficial markers of what it looks like to be a Christian in the world. And Jesus goes, No, if you want to know if it's really me, how are the poor doing amongst you? How are the blind, the deaf, The sick, the mourning. My presence is good news. It's not a promise of fixing all your problems, but it's definitely not the promise of cultural power. The real Jesus shows up beneath, not above. The real Jesus shows up with a heart of compassion and justice for the least of these, for the forgotten, for the outcasts. And that's why this gospel is so countercultural and such a threat to Herod and to Pilate and to any empires that rule. This kingdom is not from this world. The kingdom of Jesus does not play by the rules of this world. And I think in the end, John got it. And so we are invited to live as people in attention. We live between the advents, between the first and the second coming of Christ. We live as those that have a testimony, that have a witness of a human who has come and lived among us the perfect life, died in our place, risen from the dead, given us his Holy Spirit. That has happened. Christ has come. And yet we still live as a people longing for the second advent, for the return of Christ. As Dave was saying, joy to the world isn't a Christmas carol. It's about the second coming of Christ, not the first. We live with this ultimate hope that one day God will make everything new, including us. But that day is still to come. And so in the meantime, our invitation is to live as visitors from the future. To inhabit this world with the prophetic presence of John the Baptist to proclaim this truth with our mouths and to live this truth with our lives. And our hope is that if our community were ever to be put to this test, our church congregation, is this really Jesus? Is Jesus really here? The evidence would be, are the poor being cared for? Are the hungry being fed? Are the sick being tended to? Are the least of these being loved? If so, that's how you know he's really here. So the invitation this morning is to come to the table and to commune with Jesus. Communion for us isn't a metaphor, it's a true invitation to meet with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to receive the body and the blood of Christ to take his very life into ourselves so that we can go and share his life with the world. Will you stand and pray with me? Lord Jesus, I'll be the first to admit that there are times where I wish it was just a little bit more plain and simple. There are times where I wish my, that the promise of the gospel is that all my questions would be answered, my problems would be solved, my plans would work out, and my dreams would come true. But you know I find myself in the midst of a season of pain, of loss, of struggle, of uncertainty. And it would be easy for me and for many of us, Lord, to mistakenly conclude that the presence of of pain and hurt is an indicator that you're not here, or that you're not with us, or that you're not good, or that you're not strong. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, would you give us the faith to live in the tension. Would you give us the creativity and the courage to live out the gospel with our words, with our lives. To be a prophetic presence in the city of Bend and all around Central Oregon. And most of all, Lord, we pray that you would give us your heart of compassion and justice. That we would be those whose very lives and message would be good news for the poor. And it's not a stretch for us to imagine that because in many ways, in light of your gospel, we see ourselves as the poor. We see ourselves as those who are broken, who are needy, those who lack, those who want and instead of all the people and places and things we could put our trust in, Lord Jesus, we pray again this morning that you would give us the faith to put our trust in you, that we would turn our hearts towards you, and that we would, through this table, through the fellowship of your people, through the proclamation of your word, through the singing of your praise, through prayer, that we would receive life from you again today. That we may go and give life to the world. In your name for your glory.